Instead, we are going to do something today called street-level biblical apologetics. Street-level biblical apologetics. Now, apologetics is defending something. Specifically, we, we talk about defending the faith, answering objections and questions about Christianity. Biblical apologetics, I have on here what we're going to be doing today, means that we're not going to be jumping to uh, archaeological studies, we're not going to be jumping to scientific things, we're not going to be jumping to manuscript evidence or philosophical conclusions, though all those are helpful and can be good to go through, we are going to stick with the Bible and find answers to objections that come directly from the Word of God. Now, the reason I put street level on there is because these objections and questions that we're going to be going through the next two weeks are not things that are just argued about in the academy. They're not things that just PhDs talk about and and argue through. These are things that you will find on the street. Um, I know that just from doing a lot of a lot of evangelism, both on college campus as as well as on the street in Ohio. That we we did a lot of different evangelistic. Uh, activities, and you come up with a lot of different questions and objections that people throw at you. And these are some of the ones that came up most frequently. Some of these just came up a couple times, some of these dozens of times, other ones probably over a hundred times, some of the things that we're going to be examining today and next week. So we're going to look at these things and see how does the Bible deal with these objections, these questions. So before we jump in, we're going to open up the word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you so much that your word has power, that it changes people, and that we can have confidence in its power. And we know, God, that since you are true and your word is true, that it can be defended Be defended because because everything in here is reliable. Everything in here makes sense. It all accords with reality. We thank you for that, Lord God. I ask God that you would help us to stay focused today, that that we would learn together, and that we would be encouraged to go out and share the good news with others, confident that we can address some of the issues that come our way. We thank you so much for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, before we jump into our common objections and questions about Christianity, I would like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because as we think about answering questions and dealing with objections, we need to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Because if you answer all of these questions, Questions. If you you deal with their all of their objections, and the the person sees that that all of this stuff is is true, they're still going to go to hell. If you have not communicated the gospel to them, and so the most important thing for you to do when you talk with somebody about the Bible, about God, about spiritual things, is to communicate the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says in the first four verses, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is what saves us. And the gospel, according to Paul, is of first importance. And when he wanted to condense the gospel, to put it in just a few words, he says that it all has to do with sinners and Christ. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. The gospel starts with the fact that we have sinned against a holy and eternal God. We have rebelled. We have broken his law and deserve judgment. We need to be saved. And the good news of the gospel is that God in his love sent Jesus Christ to earth and he died for our sins. Meaning he died not just as an example, but he died as our substitute. All of our sin got placed on him, and he was punished for our sin. But not only did he die, but this says that he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave. Jesus Christ conquered death. He defeated death, not just for himself, but for every person who would ever believe. That is the good news that we are called to proclaim. And that good news has power. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul talks about the fact that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is what actually brings people to the Lord Jesus Christ, that breaks down the barriers, that makes us a friend of God instead of an enemy. So it is the most important thing that we are to proclaim. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul starts to promote the importance of us going out and giving this gospel to other people. And he says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The only way that someone can have saving faith is if they hear the good news about Jesus Christ. It is necessary. It is required. And so as we are dealing with people's objections, as we are dealing with people's questions, we need to remember to always bring things back to the gospel. And with that, we are going to jump into several common objections to and questions about Christianity.
The first, number one, what happens to the innocent person who has never heard about Jesus? What happens to the innocent person who has never heard about Jesus? Now, what we need to recognize right off the bat when we hear this question is that the question itself is deceptive. The question itself is wrong. Now, here's why I say that. If somebody asked me that question, what you could easily say right at the beginning is, what happens to an innocent person who has never heard about Jesus? That person goes to heaven. That person doesn't need Jesus. That person walks straight into the kingdom of God because they were innocent. They have no sin. But the problem with the question is, is there is no innocent person out there. There's no innocent person who has never heard about Jesus. There are people who have never heard about Jesus, but according to the Bible, they still stand guilty. And to show you that, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel in the book of Romans. He wants to to show the Romans and to to communicate to the Romans the, the awesomeness, the amazing power of the gospel. But before he gets to the good news, he hits the bad news. And he starts that bad news in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath, his anger, his judgment is revealed from heaven against all mankind. For all mankind has been unrighteous, has been ungodly. They suppress the truth, which means they push it down. They push it away from themselves. And God has the right to punish them for their unrighteousness because verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Every single person on the planet knows some things about God. And because they know some things about God that we're going to look at in just a second, because they know them, they are going to be held accountable. God's wrath can be, can be held over them. They can receive God's judgment because they know some of the truth. And the truth that says that they know starts in verse 20. It says, for his, God's, God's invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has shown his power. God has shown everyone that he is creator through what he has made. Every single person all across the globe, whether you live in the middle of India, whether you're on a a, a random island, whether you're in Africa, whether you're in the United States, every single person knows there is a creator because of looking at the creation. 
the awesome power of creation, the intricate design of creation shows us that there had to be a designer. You cannot look at this world, look at the sunset, look at the the human hand, look at all the, the wondrous things on this planet and not recognize that there is a creator. And so because of that, every single person is without excuse. No one can say, I didn't know. And verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Every single person on earth knows there is a creator. And every single person on earth has failed to honor that creator and give thanks to him. Every single person without Exception. Instead, they have become futile in their thinking. Meaning their thinking has become worthless. And their heart has become dark. And instead of worshipping the one eternal, all-powerful God, they've made this awful exchange. They've taken creation and grabbed that instead of the Creator. They've taken the the one who's made everything for what is made. Now, when we first look at that, we can automatically have the response, well, a lot of people don't worship little idols that you you put in your closet or something. We don't bow down to them. But we can worship anything in this life. We can put value on and on anything that takes the place of God. We can, we can look to something to give us our ultimate meaning. We can look to something else to give us our ultimate purpose. We can look to something else to give us our ultimate joy. And by doing that, by looking to those other things, we're making them an idol because we have not looked to God. So that can be something we can make an idol out of, out of money. We can idol out of our job. We can make an idol out of our families, out of our friends, our our hobbies, out of anything. But this says that all of humanity has done that. We have decided to worship things other than God. So, every single person stands guilty before God because they know He exists, and they failed to honor and give him thanks. But not only that, if you mind turning to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at one more thing. Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 12 down to verse 16. Paul has moved to the Jews in chapter 2. There have been a lot of people in chapter 1 he was talking about who had never, never heard about God and they still stood condemned. But then in chapter 2, at the beginning, he starts to talk about, hey, if you, if you have the law, 
that doesn't make you any better if you don't obey it. You're in the same boat as those who don't have the law and disobey it, if you have the law and yet still obey it, and still disobey it, excuse me. And so he goes into that in some detail, in, in starting in verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, you have God's law, and you sin, you're going to be condemned. You don't have God's law, you never received the scriptures, you, you never saw a Bible, and you disobey it, you're still going to be condemned. And you're going to be condemned because, as it says here, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Every single person has been given a conscience by God. Every single person on earth, whether they have the Bible or don't have the Bible, knows basic right from wrong. And because of that, God will hold them accountable. Now, people suppress the truth and they push down their conscience. They don't all follow their conscience, but they know. If you go to any culture around the globe, it is pretty common knowledge that if you murder your mama, that's bad. If you take something that doesn't belong from you, that's bad. We all know that right from the start. We have that in our heart. God has implanted that in everyone, and everyone has gone against their conscience, which is why it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, meaning our conscience helps us to know when we've done right and when we have done wrong. Our conscience itself condemns us. We know we're guilty. We know we have done bad things. We might deny it at some point, and we do. People suppress the truth, but everyone has that knowledge in themselves. They know they are guilty. So what happens to the innocent person who has never heard about Jesus, where, as we said, there is no innocent person on earth. The person who has never heard about Jesus Christ will be condemned not because they rejected Jesus, but because they've rejected the knowledge that God has given them. They've rejected the truth of the Creator. They have not honored Him or given Him thanks, and they have gone against the conscience that God has placed in their hearts. So everyone stands guilty, which, just kind of an aside, this is why missions are so important. The people who have never heard about Jesus 
are not going to get a pass. They need to hear about Christ. This is why we should send people out. This is why we should send our money out. This is why we should pray that people would go into those regions and tell people the good news. It is required for people to be saved. Number two, an objection that also comes up quite frequently is that it is unjust for God to send people to hell. It is unjust for God to send people to hell. In essence, God can't do that, otherwise he'd be a big meanie head. I mean, seriously, hell? Eternal punishment? You can never get out? Just day after day, week after week, month after month, decade, thousands, millions, billions of years suffering in a lake of fire? That can't be true. How could God possibly do that? That is not fair at all. Well, the reason people say that is because, one, they don't understand God's holiness. Two, they don't understand the seriousness of sin. And three, they don't understand that God is God and they are not. So for the first point of there, if you would, please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm just going to read one verse. Okay, I'm changing that. I'm going to give you the full context. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision. And this vision was of God sitting upon his throne. And around him were seraphim, which were angelic beings. We don't know much about them. The Bible gives us very little detail, except for we know from the word it has something to do with like flaming serpents, possibly. It's something aflame. These are angelic creatures. And here they are around God. And the thing that they call out is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We have a God who is holy. Now, holy is another one of those Christianese words, a word that we we kind of throw out but don't really ever define. The word holy has to do with being separate from something. Usually in Scripture, it's talking about being separate from sin. God is not one with sin. He is separate from it. He is is divided from that. He is perfectly and utterly pure. But not only that, as we have learned in our study of Genesis, God is not just separate from sin, but He is separate from all creation. He is one of a kind. He is unique. 
And this completely righteous, this pure, holy, unique God is called holy three times in this verse. Now, in English, when we want to emphasize something, we might underline it. We might put it in bold, put it in italics. We might put an exclamation point right after it. But in Hebrew, which is what Isaiah was written in, they didn't have any of those things. When they wanted to emphasize something, when they wanted something to really pop, when they wanted something to, be, to, to, to show how big something was, how, how emphasized something was, they would just repeat it a second time. In fact, there is a, a place in Genesis chapter 14 where it talks about a great pit, a really big pit. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say a big pit. It says a pit pit. Because it's emphasizing this pit was a huge pit. Well, here we have God's holiness repeated not once, not twice, but three times. This is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. It's also repeated that way in the book of Revelation. And the Lord is, is doing that to show, to show us how important this is. His holiness is so central to who he is. The fact that he is unique, that he is utterly pure, that he is completely righteous and separate from sin. And when you understand how holy God is, it helps us to start to realize how terrible any And every sin really is. Our sins are a big deal because they have been committed against a completely and utterly holy God. And God's status makes the sins so serious. If I were to walk up to Rod and punch him in the nose... I'd probably get in trouble, wouldn't I? I might get knocked on my back, but I'd also get in trouble. I might get arrested. Somebody might give me a fine or something. There would be trouble for me. But if I walked up to the President of the United States and punched him in the nose, I'm probably going down. Secret Service is probably taking out their guns, and I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. And if I do survive that encounter, I'm going to be going to jail for a long, long time. Now, the reason is, is that the president's position is so high. It's it's way up here. His, His role is lofty. Well, God, he is the highest of the high. He stands far above everyone else. He is holy. He is unique, one of a kind, pure and righteous. So when we sin against him, it is a really big deal. And all of us don't just sin a few times, but our lives are infected with a massive amount of sin. And to see that, please turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Now i got to be careful here because normally I manuscript sermons and so I know kind of how long they are. Um, 
for this I did not. So that could mean it's really short or we could be here the next two hours. So I'm going to try to keep track of the time here. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And this is Paul quoting a number of passages from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that is a pretty terrible description. But that's a description of every single person who has ever lived. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one has done good. Not in God's sight, because even the good deeds that we do are tainted by sin, are tainted by our bad motives or intentions or our unwillingness to do those good deeds for God. Before salvation, before Christ has redeemed us, we all start out evil, incredibly evil. Our sins are very great. So is it unjust for God to send people to hell? It is not. We have a God who is completely holy. Not only that, that we are infected, we are covered, we are completely sinful and wicked. But one more thing I want to mention is that when people give this objection, they forget about the fact that God is God and they are not. So if you would, please turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 18. He says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's talking about God here. He says God makes a choice. He has mercy on some, he doesn't have mercy on others. He changes some, he hardens others. Now when we first read that, the first thing that can come to our mind is, that's not fair. The first thing that can come to our mind is, how in the world can God find fault with us if it wasn't totally maybe our choice? If it was Him in the background doing something? If He was sovereign over it? It can't really be our fault. Now, Paul, who's writing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, knew that objection would come up. And he answers it, not in the way that we would maybe like him to answer it, but he answers it. Verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he, God, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can God condemn us? If we can't resist his will, how is that fair? And you know how he answers? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God is the creator, and we are not. He's the potter, we're the clay, and we have absolutely no right to say, that's not fair. It is, we have no right to say that he cannot send some to hell, some to destruction, and some to show mercy to. Now, I won't go down the bunny trail of this passage too much because we're going to hit it again next week. But it shows us God is God. We are not. And so, it is, is it unjust for God to send people to hell? No. He is holy. People are sinful. And He is the Creator God. All right, now we're going to skip number three. And I'm going to jump on that one next time. Uh, because one, two, and four kind of all wrap up together. So jump down to, to number four there. Now, a question slash objection that often gets brought up is, since I'm a good person, don't I deserve heaven? Since I'm a good person, don't I deserve heaven? Now, some people that you meet on the street might be willing to admit that there's a hell. They might be willing to admit that God has the right to send some people to hell. They might be totally on board with that, okay with that. But when you tell them you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you need to turn to this God and trust in Him alone for your salvation, their response can be, I'm a good person. So I'm going to go to a good place. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen that much. I'm mostly nice. I don't cheat on my taxes too often. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And they can think that, that God will let them in just because they've, they've done a few nice things in their life. That they in some way have earned it. But as we have seen from the book of Romans, that is not true. But to emphasize that, in one more place, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is talking about the glorious salvation that believers have received. At the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, to kind of set up talking more about God's grace, he starts out with what people were meaning what believers were, what every believer was before salvation. So this is, this is square one. We don't start out as blank slates. We start out as this. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now you talk to somebody in the street and you read them this passage, this is offensive. You say to somebody who's, who's lived a mostly good life, they've been pretty upright, they, they've been middle class, they've treated other people generally in nice ways, and you say, according to this, you're spiritually dead. You have no life in you. You're so sinful, you have no spiritual, real life. In fact, it says, you... We're following the course of this world. Meaning the evil worldly system, you're following that. Not only that, you're following the prince of the power of the air. Satan, he's been your boss. That's who you've been following. And not only that, but we would live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds. We just followed our, our evil, wicked desires. And the final conclusion is that we are characterized as being children of wrath, meaning we deserve God's anger, God's punishment. That's how everyone starts out. So no one starts out as a good person. No one starts out deserving heaven. We all start out in the minus category. We all start out deserving one and one thing alone, and that is God's wrath. But the good news is that Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't end there. And remember I said that we need to keep the gospel central. And when we answer these questions and we answer these objections and we, we, we give this grim picture that we're all messed up, that we are sinful, that we are following Satan, that we're spiritually dead, that we're heading towards destruction, we don't want to forget to then give the rest of the story, to give the good news, which we see in verse 4 of Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is good news. There is a but God. And that's something we want to explain to every single person that we talk to when we address these objections and these questions about Christianity. One final thing before we close. As you've seen, those, the three objections, the three questions that we covered today, all of them dealt with the issue of sin. All of them. And that's an issue that we must deal with. 
In fact, if we do not deal with that issue, we cannot proclaim the gospel. No one will accept a Savior until they recognize they need to be saved. So we must start with the bad news before we can even get to the good news. But, like I said, we don't want to end with that bad news. We do want to actually get to that good news, to give them hope that there is a way of salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord God, we do thank you for that great news. We thank you for the truth that though we are sinners, though we are messed up, that you've been willing to send us a Savior. I ask God that as we interact with people who don't know you, as we interact with people who have rejected you, and we we begin to answer some of their questions, we begin to deal with some of their objections, that we would be willing, that we would be bold enough to tell them that they are sinners just like us, that they have broken God's law, and that's a serious thing, and that they deserve eternal judgment, but that there is a way of salvation through your Son. We thank you for that good news. In your son's name we pray. Amen.